With his first semester as president of Texas State University in the books, Kelly Danfis is reflecting on his time in San Marcos and looking forward to what's to come. In this episode of States Up, we chat about the president's biggest win from his first semester, what it's like being Canadian in Texas, hockey, and his vision for the new direction of the football program. President Danfis also talks about the important relationship between the city of San Marcos and Texas State University. Welcome to episode two of States Up. My name is Ali Forbes and I'll be your host for today. And for Jill Amen. I'm here with President Dampus. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Happy to be here, Allie. Nice to meet you. I'm glad to get a chance to chat with you. Fellow Canadian here, and so it's good to always touch base with our Canadians. You know, I always joke about the fact that Canadians have Canada. Like, you can tell a Canadian from a mile away. From you know? a mile away. All of a sudden, when I found out you had been named the new president, you were Canadian, I considered myself a lot more invested in that search. <laughs> I was thrilled to hear the news. That's hilarious. You know, it's funny about Canadians. We tend to be pretty humble people. And uh, kind of surprised when Canadians are successful. And then we want to brag on them all the time. Like, hey, did you know Michael J. Fox is Canadian? You know, and uh, Lauren Green's Canadian. And, uh, you know, because we want to, like, really brag about the fact that Canadians kind of make it. Because it kind of surprises us, I think, when people do make it. And uh, besides hockey players, I guess. And so, but it is a, I, I think it's it's kind of cool how Canadians kind of, will come together at a resort or something like that and you see oh there's a Canadian look you've got a little maple leaf on your shirt or you're wearing a poppy for example that was really uh last month when I was wearing a poppy uh, before Remembrance Day or Veterans Day people say I've, what is a poppy about and I said well in Canada everyone wears a poppy you know like Canadians all you know, it's just kind of a normal thing for us you mm -hmm. know so anyways it's kind of fun to always touch base with Canadians find out where they're from and you know uh, whatever connection you make with people but we're always doing that, right? We're always trying to, like, how can I connect with you? Like, what do I have in common with you? Like, where'd you grow up? Or or uh, what's your major? Or, you know, what's your interest? And so on. And uh, where you're from uh, is, is one of the best ways to make connection with someone because you have so many similarities. You know, even if you're from a different part of Canada, we still have a lot in common, like bilingual cornflakes box, right? <laughs> so you learn to speak French by reading the, the cornflakes box uh, backside of it because you get to see the English version and you get the French version right beside it. I'm actually from New Brunswick. Oh, Oh, that's funny. So you're way out there. And, yeah. and speak a lot of French. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so a couple of things. You mentioned, you know, the folks in Canada being hockey fans. So do you have a favorite NHL team? Sure. So I was a French kid growing up in Western Canada. And when I was growing up, there was only three Canadian teams. There were six teams total. There's the original six. And uh, so I was a Montreal Canadiens fan. And so I grew up in the 70s being a huge Canadiens fan. And that has just stuck with me. And uh, then my cousin eventually became a player for the Canadians, which is actually pretty cool as well. So his name is Vincent Domfus. That's how they say his name back there. And so that really cemented my Canadian, you know, Montreal Canadiens uh, fandom. But uh, I've always been a Canadiens fan. I still root for them. You know, they're the last team, bit of trivia here, the last Canadian-based team to win the Stanley Cup, and that was in 1993, which is uh, 30 years ago. Too long. <laughs> Too long, yeah. What about you? Do you have a favorite team? I, I do. I probably should have waited till the end to ask about that question because my dad's a big Leafs fan, yeah. so I cheer for the Leafs. But the good news is my mom's from outside Montreal, so she's a big Canadians fan. She'll go. be thrilled to hear that you like the Canadians. That's hilarious. Well, Toronto was my number two team. Uh, Edmonton was my, like my Lemmered last team. I don't know when Wayne Gretzky was there; everyone thought he was so great, and I hated, you know, you know. And I was an Alberta kid. I was more of a Flames fan than an Oilers fan. So okay, that's so interesting. Expanded. Had someone have asked me, my guess would have been the the Edmonton Oilers. No. So I'm surprised to hear that it's. I grew the up close to Edmonton, but I just 
I don't know why. Well, I was born in Calgary. My mm-hmm. mom was from Calgary. She was a big Stampeders fan. That's a CFL team. And so if I had to choose a team, like Calgary's my my town, right? Even though I grew up north of Edmonton. But but yeah, it was fun. And so just one last question on the Canadian yeah. topic since we're on it. What is one thing that Texas State students should know about Canadians or about Canada that they don't already? You know, it's interesting. We touched on this a little bit. I think Texans had this reputation of being really proud about being Texans. Canadians are the same way, but it's a, it's more of um, they're proud of their humility, which is kind of funny. Like, oh, we're 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 a humble people. That's what makes us so great. We're so polite and so on. But Canadians are incredibly polite. And um, I don't know if you know this, but the National Word of Canada. Do you know what that word is? Do you want me to guess? Yeah. Sorry. It's sorry. That's right. <laughs> and you said it right. It's not. It's not sorry. It's sorry. And uh, it's funny. So if Canadian stands is standing somewhere and someone bumps into him. Your first response is to apologize for being in the, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in your way, you know. And uh, so Canadians are, are proud of their humility and are always apologetic. Like, they're always apologizing for things. And my kids laugh about it all the time because I'll say, oh, I'm sorry. And that's hey, the one Canadian expression that has stuck with me the longest, this, the, this, the hard O on sorry, you know. Do your girls feel connected to their Canadian heritage, having grown up here in the United yeah, States? Do they feel Canadian of. in any way? Yes, yeah, sort of, but not really. Like they're they're Canadian citizens by birth, and so they're actually dual citizens. And um, but they, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time in Canada, so they are mostly as a bragging point more than anything. That yeah, I'm also Canadian. And so uh, what's interesting is that they could theoretically have a passport to get into Canada and a passport to come back in the States. And we always joke about being like Jason Bourne, like which passport will I use and so on. Uh, but but they only use it mostly as a bragging or as a fun fact kind of thing that they're half Canadian. But we just have spent a lot of time there and, and it's really a bit hard to get back there. And then the kids get older and, you know, it's and COVID was so hard to get back there as well. But we're planning a trip this summer. Uh, try to get back there and visit my dad. And my sister live in Calgary, and so I uh, try to go back and visit them too. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I've never been to New Brunswick though. I need to go out there. Well, it, I don't know if you know, but the World Juniors are there at Christmas time, and there is an open-ended invite for you and your girls to come <laughs> and have the full Canadian experience on the East Coast after the holidays if you'd I like would to. Love to do that. You know, I did make the mistake of taking my wife up there uh, at Christmas time, and I thought. It was going to be super romantic. We'd go walk in the snow if it fell. And, you know, I think there's nothing more beautiful than the snow falling and the streetlights and so on. But it was the least romantic thing I ever did in my life because she dressed up like a, the abominable snowman <laughs> and she hated the whole thing. And it was 40 below. And she's like, how can you people live up here? And so it was a mistake to take her at Christmas time. So. Well, moving on, I'm sure there's some folks who want to know about Texas State University. Sure. <laughs> so as we round the corner on your first semester here at Texas State, I think some folks would love to know, like, what is the biggest win that you've had so far since you've been here? Oh, that's a great question. You know, uh, to me, any leader is has to be honest about the anxiety about going to a new place. And I'd been a chancellor for five years at Arkansas State before I came here. And I was nervous about going there because I'd been a dean at a large university and I'd never been a, a campus leader before. And there was some nervousness about that, but I, I figured out you know, my niche and my way of doing things. But my nervousness about coming here was, would I be able to translate what I did there here because it's such a larger university? And I think there was a kind of a tradition of kind of a more formal presidency as as opposed I tend to be a pretty informal person I'm not you know it doesn't bother me if people call me by my first name and and um, and so I was I was worried about would would things translate and would I have to change who I was and at some point I just said I just I can't pretend to be someone else and I'll just have to I just have to be me and they'll either have to accept me or not and so the biggest win has been 
really the response of the faculty, staff, and students who have just said, oh, we kind of like this version of a president as well. And uh, we like the last person, but we like this person as well. And um, them allowing me to be me has been uh, probably the biggest win. We can also talk about some of the changes we're putting in place. And again, I'm always hesitant about talking about change as a positive thing because it kind of implies that what was we were doing before it wasn't working. It's not true. We're an excellent university. I wouldn't have come here if I didn't think that. But we're in the middle of transitioning from an an R2 university become an R1 institution, so more heavily focused on research. We're going to put a lot of emphasis on student success and recruiting, trying to grow the size of our student body. You know, we're currently about 39,000 students, uh, but we've plateaued. We, we grew to 39,000 and then just kind of sat there. And uh, I think we can get to a much larger university undergraduate. And part of this is, you know, affects our budget by having more students here. But also, for me, it's all about creating more access to a four-year college degree. Because I think that's the thing that changes people's lives more than anything, is getting a four-year college degree. So we have a commission on, on student success and recruitment, and we have a commission on the run to R1, uh, our research emphasis, and then working really hard on improving athletics as well to make sure that we're successful in all things. In fact, my motto has become excellence in all things, and so we, we shouldn't settle for being average or mediocre in any of the things we're doing because I think we're already a great university. We need to promote more of that, the things we're doing so well. We also have to make sure that we are actually being excellent in all things as well. But to me, the biggest success has been being accepted by the staff and the faculty and the students and the alumni, and uh, and then starting those two big commissions on student success and the run to R1. As we talk about kind of the wins in the same breath, has there been any unanticipated challenges or hurdles that kind of surprised you? Well, that's a good question. Here's something that surprised me. I, You know, I thought that San Marcos is kind of more of a traditional college town, uh, and I think it is, but there seems to be a disconnect between campus in the city. And that's the thing that kind of surprised me the most. I thought that there'd be a much closer integration between San Marcos and the, and the university. I don't think there's animosity there, but I don't feel like as we're, we're as connected. And here's just an example. So, and part of this is also a, a changing part of history over time is, you know, we don't have a homecoming parade for the university. And I always think homecoming parades are kind of fun. And homecoming parades that are downtown are part of the fun as well to, to integrate the city and the university and events like that. And um, and so I'd love to reinstitute, we used to have a homecoming parade. I'd love to reinstitute that and have it be downtown and connect us so close. Our downtown is literally across the street from campus. And I'm gonna work really hard in the coming year to, I don't wanna say repair the relationship with the city, but to improve it. I think the town and gown relationship is so important to the life of a university and also to the life of the city that hosts the university. It's our hometown. We recently had a football game dedicated to the city of San Marcos, and we had the, the uh, independent school district superintendent there. We recognized him. We put up footballs that had a rattler and a bobcat on the same football. And, and so we're trying to make that effort to tie us more closely to San Marcos. We're in a weird situation that we're, lar- we're next to two large cities, uh, Austin and San Antonio, but we're not really in those cities. We're really in San Marcos, and so we want to celebrate that more. So that's probably the biggest surprise I had was kind of like the uh, disconnect between the city and the university, and it's something I'm really excited about working on because I think that if we can improve that, we can, you know, where I was selling San Marcos when we we recruit students here and faculty and staff, and we want to be able to help sell San Marcos to visitors as well when they we want to sell help help use the university to sell San Marcos to visitors as well so uh, we want to I think we just want to have a stronger integration between the two just one last overarching question what is your favorite thing about Texas State University man I love the people I love the people the best part has been getting to know people Um, the faculty and staff have been really supportive I actually have a couple colleagues that I've worked with in the past 
that are here now. And so they've been very welcoming. Had a, one of my former students is on faculty here, and that's been kind of cool to meet up with him as well. The students have been incredibly receptive. And uh, it's always, again, that's the, that's the thing that made me kind of nervous about being here is like, would I be able to connect with students? Would I be able to engage with them outside of, you know, kind of formal opportunities? And, and they've been incredibly receptive and kind and, and welcoming. So to me, that's been the best part. You opened the door on the athletics. And yeah. I just want to talk a little bit. You talked sure. about wanting to be excellent in athletics. I know we touched on it in the last podcast, but since then there's been an announcement about a change in the leadership of the football program recently. So what is it that you're looking for in a new leader? What is the direction that the football team or the athletics program more generally is headed? Sure. Well, one of the things uh, I think is important for the next football coach, and by the way, I want to talk about the previous football coach. Um, it's hard for people to understand the kind of relationship that a president has with all of his employees, but especially those who who represent us so much. And so football and athletics, football in particular, athletics in general, academics and so on, you tend to build really strong relationships with people because they're representing the university. And so when you have to make a change, it's very challenging because you know those people, you know their spouses and you know their children, you know the impact that's going to have on them personally. So it's very hard. I, I wish Coach Babatal all the best. Um, and, and I think that he's a great coach, uh, but things just, as Don Coriel, our athletics director said, we just weren't being as successful as we thought we should be. And so we had to make that change. I think one of the things we're looking for is someone who who's got some head coaching experience. I think this is a big operation and there's a this is a big job and I think we've we've had experiences. We've hired coordinators who hadn't been coaches before. We've hired former coaches before and I think the success seems to center more on people who have actually been a coach before that where this job isn't uh, the first head coaching job for someone. So some ex- head coaching experience and at any level just because when you're the head coach at almost any level, you understand and you learn things along the way. You make mistakes and so on, but you learn about how it, what it takes to be a coach because coaching is not just about X's and O's. It's also about community relations and hiring uh, assistant coaches and working with donors and so on. And so the head coaching experience is important. I think it's really important for us to have someone who's connected to Texas, uh, especially Texas high school football coaches, because it, we have an incredible recruiting pool here. And we're in the hotbed of high school football. People come from around the country to recruit here. And if we're not recruiting uh, local uh, high school students who want to stay local, their parents want to watch them play, I think we're missing out on something. So that'll be a big deal. Someone who, who understands high school coaches and can recruit locally. And then someone who's got uh, a game plan, who understands our current players, can work with who we have. Someone who's going to be able to recruit our current players. Because you know there's a transfer portal and there's ability for students to move around. So the first job they're going to have is recruiting the current players to stay and then has a plan for recruiting new students and then has a plan for for winning games. And so I think having um, a good offensive strategy is really important. Someone understands that because we're a quarterback-driven league. The more points you score, <laughs> the better off you are here. And, and our offense didn't reach the levels we needed them to have. Our defense was really good, but our offense just didn't score enough points. And so that's what left a couple of those potential wins off the table for us. And so someone with an offensive game plan will be really important as well. As the NCAA rules have changed surrounding name, image, and likeness, Mm -hmm. is there anything we as a university are doing to support the athletes in kind of those new, I don't know if they're business ventures or what those might be as they kind of start to evolve? Is there anything that we're doing as a university to help support them? Yeah, so there's there's a new concept that's been developed called collectives, and this is uh, mostly happening at, at schools, at 
the autonomy five schools, so the the five conferences that have a lot more resources. So schools like Texas and Texas A&M are considered part of the autonomy five. And what's happening there is big money donors are coming together and creating a collective where they're all donating into that collective and then they're parceling money out to student athletes. Well, we don't really have collectives or the capacity to create collectives here at that scale. And we have some restrictions. We're not really allowed to create relationships between our student athletes and um, and potential partners, business partners for them. But we certainly provide support for them. We provide training for them. One of our student athletes, female student athlete, just signed an endorsement deal. In fact, she may have the biggest endorsement deal. She's a, I believe she's a volleyball player. No, she's a basketball player. A freshman basketball player has an endorsement deal with uh, merchandising, a fashion merchandising line. And so um, so we're helping them when they'd say, here's, a, here's someone I want to work with, helping them work through the legal processes here because it becomes complicated now. So let's say, let's say you work out a deal and you get free meals at a local barbecue. If every time you go there, you post a picture saying, hey, I love this barbecue. You, you're getting free food and that's taxable. So if you're not getting any money at the end of the year, you're gonna have to pay taxes on all that free food. And so explaining those processes to them, explaining uh, contracts. We want to make sure that our students don't sign contracts that bind them beyond their college playing career. So maybe they want to go off and play professionally. And if they sign a contract that says for the next 15 years you belong to us, that puts them at, at risk as well. So most on, on our side, it's uh, education and uh, helping them get from here to there. And then, you know, we're also trying to do as good a job as we can as promoting them as individuals so that other entities who might want to create relationships with them know who they are and know their success. And so uh, we have a, a great marketing team that does a really good job with graphics and video promoting our student athletes. So someone would say, oh, there's someone I want to go work with. And so, again, we can't directly engage with that process, but we can do it indirectly by promoting our students. Yeah, the, the legality issues of the contracts is something that I had never even thought of. Yeah. So giving those athletes that training and understanding that, you know, isn't inherent. You don't just wake up one day and understand some of those complexities. Um, so it's it's important that training for them is obviously very important. Yeah, think about uh, artists who get with a recording company. And uh, Taylor Swift, for example, uh, pretty famously signed you know, a contract that she probably wishes she hadn't signed when she was young. And um, she lost some control over her artistic integrity. And so now she's fighting back with that. Tom Petty famously had some fights with recording or his contracts as well. And so um, when you're young and you're eager to engage in this way, you might make a mistake that might have long-term ramifications for you. That's where we're trying to protect them from. So changing directions, we're talking a little bit about artists, and we're sitting across from the brand new, beautiful Live Oak Hall. Yes. So just wanted to get an idea of what that project means to the campus, all the cool and unique ways that we're going to be able to use it, what's going on over there. You yeah. Know? So we're excited about that. And this project that, that uh, actually obviously started before I got here and opened just after I got here. We haven't had the grand opening yet, but we'll, we'll do that. But it's being used right now. What's great about it is it's, it's focusing on the new era of filmmaking. It used to be you'd create these elaborate sets or you'd go on location, but so much now filmmaking is done in a studio with a bunch of green screen and you're, you know, you're acting to a tennis ball and then they're going to come in behind and put the background and actually the the dinosaur that you're talking to is will be, you know, computer generated. And this studio will give us the opportunity for our students to to get some experience doing that. What is interesting is that there's a new film studio coming to San Marcos and they actually will be concentrating on that kind of film production as well. So the students who are at Live Oak Hall will have a great opportunity to just go across town and go to this uh, this new uh, movie studio and take that the skills they're learning there. Plus, eventually, we'll have the artists who are working at that 
movie studio will come here and be our instructors as well. I mean, opportunities for them to engage back and forth so that we create a pipeline for students. So this will be a great opportunity for us to recruit students to come who want to get in the film industry, especially that version of the film industry, come to San Marcos and never leave here, which is what we really want to do at the university. We want to create employment opportunities for our students so that when they come here, they stay here because that helps the community as well. The more people who live in a community have a, have a college degree raises the quality of life and the standard of living for the entire community. And that kind of circles back nicely to what you talked about at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about the relationship between the university and the city. So yep. things like this new film studio here in town you know, working either informally or formally with our students um, is just a great opportunity, obviously, for them and for us. So. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and there are lots of other industry in town and, and uh, the large businesses are coming into this area beyond filmmaking um, that we want to make sure our students have access to as well. Because again, one of the rich experiences, learning experiences that students have is internships. And so local businesses, industry, and so on, let's, for example, uh, construction management and maybe uh, there's there's a lot of builders out there who want to hire people out of a construction management program but we also have part of that a subset of that is is concrete industry and there's I read somewhere something recently that concrete is the number one used man-made material and uh, we do a lot of concrete construction around here mm -hmm. we have concrete plants all over the between here in San Antonio you'll see them as you drive through there and so we're creating opportunities for students to come to, to come to the university and have great paying jobs and leave here. And sometimes you worry, you know, are we becoming a tech school by creating? But, but students really want to know they have a job waiting for them at the end. And employers want that too. And they're investing in the university, providing scholarships, and most importantly, providing internships. So in the summertime, when a student is in, in concrete management or in construction management, they actually go get an internship or a summer job that's aligned with that so that in their senior year, they've already got a job waiting for them at the end. Uh, our sales uh, department does a great job with placing 100% of our students get jobs when they leave. Same thing with construction management and, and uh, concrete industry, uh, industry management. Every one of those students has a job at the end because of the rich internship opportunities. We want to expand that beyond kind of the practical hands-on engineering kinds of experiences to all aspects of the university. So a sociology major has an internship program. Uh, teachers have always had that through the teacher training program. But uh, we want to make sure every student who comes here has an opportunity to do an internship at some point or, or some kind of expanded uh, high-impact uh, learning opportunity where when they leave here, they're ready to take a job somewhere. And part of it is just, you know, it's interesting. People talk about what, you know, what majors make the most money and things like that, and what should I major in? The truth is that most people don't do a job that's named after their major, and most people are doing jobs they never heard of before in college. And uh, they may start off here, but eventually three years later, they're working somewhere else. So what I always encourage people is, is to get the major you like that you feel most comfortable in and then look for high impact opportunities to, to learn as well internships study abroad uh, shadowing people you might want to do the kind of job they're doing networking with people learning about opportunities beyond uh, your own discipline working with your professors to learn more about what can i do with a sociology degree and so on i mean just think about what's what happens here on in this building with uh, with media the students are getting hands-on experience actually engaging with the activity and some of them are actually probably working on ESPN productions. And so they can take that hands-on experience and take it somewhere and more easily get a job than in other universities where they don't have that experience. You set me up very nicely for my last I question. Did. Well, yes, good. it's like we've done this yes. before. Um, and so my question then is, we talk a lot about the, the Racer R1. I know we spent a lot of time on that in, in the last podcast. How does your unique research, because your research background is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. 
And so how does your personal research impact, you know, how you see our race to R1? You know, I actually use this narrative a lot. When I was, um, when I went to graduate school, I really went there mostly because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life and I wanted to stay in the States. And so I had a student visa, so I just extended it and stayed because I was getting married. And, and, uh, and then when I got there, I thought, well, I'll go to graduate school and maybe get a master's and become a teacher somewhere. And I didn't understand the research process at all until I got to graduate school. And then I realized, oh, this is what faculty, I, I didn't know what faculty did when they weren't teaching. I thought they were like, I don't know what they were doing. I thought they were teaching all day, and I had no idea about the research process. But I learned that through graduate school. And then when I graduated, I found myself being intrigued by the whole research process and became a researcher, and I was publishing articles. And so when I was really doing drugs and crime were kind of my areas, and I was doing some research on Satanism, um, about policing and Satanism and uh, youthful involvement in Satanism and so on. So I had kind of an eclectic background. And then I got involved in terrorism research with my first job. My boss was a terrorism researcher. I was a statistician, so I was helping him with some papers. And, and we started this program called the American Terrorism Study. And that really took off and it became my, my research career was mostly around terrorism. But I, the experience I had when I moved to the University of Oklahoma, which was an R2 institution that wanted to become an R1, sounds familiar. And uh, I met with the then vice president for research. And he said, I want you to go write a big grant. And I'd written grants before, and my grants were like $50,000. And I said, big grant, like $100,000? And he said, no, a million dollars. And I literally said, I don't know what I'd do with a million dollars. And he said, well, maybe I should be talking to somebody else. I said, no, 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 I'm your guy. And so he connected me with someone who'd written a lot of grants and mentored me and helped me write grant proposal. And next thing I know, I wrote a grant for $1.645 million. I remember that because it's all over my resume now. And I got that grant. I never would have gotten it without the pushing and the prodding and then the mentorship that I received there. So that informs what we need to do here. We need to be encouraging people. We've got great researchers all over this campus that, you know, we already are a research university. They need prodding. They need encouragement. They need support. They might need some seed money to get things going. And they need infrastructure behind them because running a grant program can be complicated. You spend all your time writing grant proposals and making sure people get paid and doing all the paperwork and so on. We need to provide that infrastructure for them so they can concentrate on the science itself. And then we need to provide other support for them, for example, graduate students. So we're going to recruit more graduate students. But we have graduate students here, but we haven't really provided the infrastructure support they need. For example, having a tuition waiver. For, for a doctoral student who's engaged in research. Other universities are doing that and we're not. And because of that, we're, we're not as competitive as we can be. So my experience of having all that assistance including the encouragement leads me to think we can do the same thing here and we have to use that, that, the lesson I learned there about investing in the faculty, investing in the staff that support the faculty, investing in the students who also support the faculty. That will all those lessons here will, will bleed into our efforts to become an R1 institution. President Danfis, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. It's so happy. You have a great NPR voice, by the way. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. First and foremost, thanks to President Danfis for joining us. Since the recording of this episode, Texas State University has named G.J. Kinney as their new head football coach. Kinney, a native Texan, possesses many of the qualities President Danfis described in this episode. He's a native Texan with strong ties to the state and the community. He has head coaching experience at the collegiate level and was formerly an offensive coordinator. As a former NFL quarterback, Kinney will bring the edge the Bobcats need on the offensive side of the ball. You've been listening to States Up, KTSW's monthly one-on-one with President Kelly Danfis. 
You can find this episode on KTSW Blog at ktswblog.net. I'm your host, Allie Forbes. In for Jill Amen. Thanks for joining us.